Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and following. We went through the first part of this section of Philippians last time we got together, or the time before last, rather. And God willing, we're going to go through the rest of it now and focus in on really just one primary verse here as we read. But we're going to read, read right now, excuse me, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And if you're physically able, will you stand with me right now as we read from God's precious Word? Um, the Bible says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, and that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Okay, thank you very much for standing. You may be seated. appreciate you standing. This is the second part of a message that we've titled for this section of the Scriptures, The Priority pursuit and practice of unity the priority pursuit and practice of unity the Bible in this message to the church at Philippi is a message of Christian unity centered around their partnership in the gospel we've talked about that time and again what do partners in the gospel look like and that's why throughout the narrative if we start there at that verse and we look at it from the lens of a partnership I think we'll glean greater understanding in the spirit of the book and why Paul, Paul wrote it we're partners in the gospel. It's got to wear now sometimes when I'm signing letters and we send out birthday cards to you all and um, try to often put in there a reminder that we're partners in the gospel. What a great thing to know we're in partnership, that we don't stand alone. The Bible says a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. That the, the isolationist Christian is not a biblical Christian. That we're in this together. That we're a part of the body of Christ. Isn't it wonderful to belong? How many of you ever have not been good enough at sports when they picked a team and you were standing there just begging, begging, and pleading within your heart that you won't be the last person picked? Has that ever happened to you? Al, thank you for your honesty. Joe's been honest as well. The rest of y'all are want to be. You know how you know how we re we reflect back on our athletic careers and they're a lot better than what they really were. We don't ever do that, do we? But uh, you're sitting there and just terrified that you're going to be the last one picked, or maybe you might be the odd man out because. It's the most embarrassing, humiliating thing. It's never happened to me, but I've seen it happen to others. <laughs> and so, you know, you don't want to be the last guy on the team. But let me tell you this. The Bible says that you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That you got into the body of Christ through no accident. There are no unplanned bursts in the body of Christ. They're all intentional. As a matter of fact, He's the one that gave you the faith to believe, as we see in this text here. And it's all Him and none of us. And you're a part you're a part of the body of Christ. And if you're a part of the body of Christ, a plan comes with that. And if a plan comes with that, provision comes with a plan. And that provision is to be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise His name for that. And we looked at that last time when we looked at our conduct. This is how we outline this text. Our conduct, our characteristics, the commitment, the uh, calmness, and the communion. And we looked at the conduct when we looked at the first verse when it said only let your conduct be worthy. And we talked about the fact that that word conduct is the word from which we get our English word politics or politician. And it means that our conduct as a citizen or a colony or a member of a community. 
that our membership in the body of Christ means we're a member of an eternal kingdom, one in which it will not pass away, and the charge and the head of that kingdom without contest, uncontested head of that kingdom is Jesus Christ. He's God and we're not. And we're a part of that. And he said your conduct should be consistent with the kingdom that you live in. We talked about the fact, and Michael brought it up last week, about the he came up to me and he said about a green card. You know, that that's a temporary thing. You may have a green card and you have temporary rights and privileges, you know, and that uh, that, that grants you, um, uh, but you're not a real permanent citizen. And you know what? We're kind of green card people, really, in that fact that our American citizenship actually is temporary. Amen? That this is not home. We're citizens of heaven. Hallelujah. Aren't you grateful for that? And that the characteristics of that would be that we would stand fast in one spirit. Look at the things that are common in the text. He said, here's what's common about you. You have one spirit. Look at that. The Holy Spirit unites us. We're baptized into the body of Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a physical baptism. Physical baptism is what you do. Spiritual baptism is what's done to you. When you're physically baptized, you go into a pool of water and ideally, or maybe a pastor comes up and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a physical act, an outward manifestation of an inward grace, a transformation that took place on the inside. It doesn't save you, but it's a step of obedience after having been saved. But there's a spiritual baptism the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 6. And that spiritual baptism is not what you do, it's what's done to you. And that's when you're baptized into the body of Christ. Hallelujah. You're immersed in Him. You have a brand new life. You can walk new because you have been made new. The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. So we stand fast. We're baptized into one body through one Spirit. Every one of us as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we stand fast and we all have one mind. How could we have one mind? Think of all the thoughts that are going on right now in here. Some of you are not thinking about the text. You're thinking about what you're going to do or what you're going to eat after dinner. After, uh, Hey! <laughs> the other day in the parking lot, Dave was standing, there, <laughs> standing next to his car and I walked up in the parking lot and he didn't know I was there. And I went, Hey! Like that. <laughs> and I wish you could have seen the look on his face. That's a funny... I mean, he was terrified. I got him, buddy. <laughs> Listen, but see, think about the, all the different thoughts that are going on right now and all the different perspectives. But you know what? Because of the supernatural work of God, we can all be united in our mind because every one of us have what? We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ, the Bible. You know, I can, I can, I, let God speak for Himself. Don't speak for God. Let Him speak for Himself. Where does He speak for Himself? In the Word. And I got the mind of Christ. I can think like Jesus thinks. I can see things the way that Jesus sees them. And God doesn't have a perspective because the perspective implies that there are other perspectives that are equally as valuable. And they're not. God just sees things for the way they are. I got a friend of mine that said he got it from somebody else probably because most of us never have original thoughts. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? Deal with it for a few minutes. When it's going to hit you, you go, ah! God never says, whoa, that never occurred to me. 
Because he knows everything. He has the mind of Christ. That's our characteristic. This is what we have in common. We have one spirit. We stand fast. We have one mind. If we're going to be like-minded, God will unify us. We didn't talk about unity. We're not talking about uniformity, but we're talking about unity. And what we're striving together for? The faith of the gospel. What else is there that's worth striving for? What other hills are there worth dying for? What's the hill? It's Calvary. It's Calvary. What matters? What's the only thing that matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And then we stand fast. We've got one spirit. We have one mind. If we're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been baptized into the body of Christ by one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And to look at the commitment that comes from that. We're not in any way terrified. We're striving together for the, for the gospel. Let me tell you what terrifies the enemy. <clears throat> we talked about this. And I'm going to say this again because I think this is a great point. I've said it several times. High time we in the body of Christ learn what was learned long time ago about our solar system. We used to think that the earth was in the center of the solar system. Now we found out it's three planets over from the sun and that the sun is in the middle of the solar system. And we as Christians need to understand that we're not the center of things, but the S-O-N is. That's why the Apostle Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way, he has his way with me. But the commitment is this. The commitment is that we renounce ourselves and we get hold of the mind of Christ. And we talked about the mind of Christ. It's displayed for us in uh, Philippians 2.5 when it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it equality, consider it robbery would be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The mind of Christ is agape love, and agape love is this. Agape love sets its sights on the cross, and agape love says this. I am willing to sacrifice myself for the spiritual benefit of others. That's the mind of Christ. I'm not going to hang on to this God title. I'll never let it go. I'm God. He didn't stop being God, but He put aside His rights as God, humbled Himself, and came down here and became a man. That's the mind of Christ. And if that's the mind of a New Testament church, my what power that New Testament church could have. We only give lip service to the fact that it's not about us. That's easy to say, but it's another thing to live. It's another thing to live. And the communion, you know what else we have in common? This will encourage you, I hope. Suffering. We're baptized into the body into one spirit. We have one mind. Do you see the unity in this text? We have one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We don't have competing agendas. If we have competing agendas in church, then all it takes is two of us not to get along. No more than two. It's like the old joke about the guy who was on a desert island. You've heard it before. And they come and rescue him and there are three huts on the island, side by side by side. The one on the left hand is where he lived. 
And he was asked, he said, what's the one next to that? He said, that was a church, chapel. He said, what's the one next to that? He said, that's a church, that's a chapel. He said, why'd you need two of them? He said, because that's the one I used to go to. Got mad and there was a split and I left. You have competing agendas. I guarantee you we will not get along. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one mind. There's one cause. It's the gospel. There's one Savior. That's it. And let me tell you something else we have in common. Suffering. Suffering. Look at it. Look at, look at the verse. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know that word granted? You know that word granted really could be translated this way? It really is. Probably a better translation of it. For you it has been graced to suffer on behalf of Jesus. You know what the word grace means? The word grace means unmerited favor. How often do we think of suffering in the body of Christ as a Christian as unmerited favor? You go through a difficult time and do you ever get down and just pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to know I'm grateful for this suffering because I flat don't deserve it. Did you know that would be an accurate prayer? Did you know that prayer is thoroughly biblical? It is thoroughly biblical. Lord, I know in the middle of this storm, whatever it takes to conform me to the image of your Son, you've got me in the middle of a vice grip right now and the pressure is mounting and everybody around me doesn't understand me and you just it's just getting bad and I want you to know, I want you to thank, I want to thank you for it because I do not deserve that. That's God's mind about suffering as a result of being in the middle of His will. That's His mind. So that's not perspective, it's reality. It's not just another way of looking at things. It's the truth. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's the power of biblical thinking. For suffering is a result of being in the middle of God's will. It's grace. It is unmerited favor. Why is that? I'm going to use three R's to share that. One is it's real short. It's real short. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. Let's look. Get ready to go do a little Bible drill here because we're going to go through the Scriptures Turn left and go to 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul said that suffering of this earth, the temporary suffering in Romans 8, is not worthy to be compared to the glory that follows. He said that in Romans. But watch this. 2 Corinthians 4. I'm stalling for time because it's taken me a long time to get there. Okay, here it is. Verses 16 through 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, look at this, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hence, part of the value of suffering in the name of Christ and persevering in the suffering is God will open up your eyes to see what can't be seen any other way. 
He will display His glory to you in ways that other people only theorize about. When you get to see Him in the middle of your storm and you get to commune with Him and you know He's with you and you can't explain it, but I can tell you this, the Lord stood with me. There's an inwrought peace in me I ought not to have. As a matter of fact, I've never had it before. I used to know about Him, but now I know Him. And that's persevering through trial. But you know what the encouraging part about it is? Number one R, it's real short. It is momentary. It is light affliction. It's not going to last forever. There's a steady hand at the wheel. There is a hand managing, managing the flame in the crucible of your life. And that hand's got nail scars in it. And He's coming back again. Amen? It's temporary. It's real short. And I'll tell you another thing about it. Another R. It's redemptive. It's redemptive. We've talked about this time and again. Redemptive. Look at uh, Philippians 1.25. Go back over there to the left. Let's go to Philippians. It's redemptive. Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. When you persevere under trial and you continue to trust God in the midst of the storm, God will use that as a witness to strengthen others. He will use it to strengthen others who are in the body of Christ and He will use it to perplex those who are outside it to wonder, how can you have peace like that? Whatever that is, everything I've tried is not giving it to me. There must be something different about you. That's what he wants to do. Look at, look at Colossians 1.24. Look at Colossians 1.24. We're just scratching the surface in all of this. The Apostle Paul rejoiced over that because it's real short and it's redemptive. It's redemptive. His suffering, he knew, was a result. Could you imagine this, Chris? What about this? What if it could be said of your life? Not bragging on you, but bragging on Jesus. I mean you generically. But what if, what if it could be said of your life that my suffering was used by God to progress other people in their faith? What would you rather be? President of the United States? CEO of the biggest? What was your network? I mean, you tell me, you name something that's, more, that's greater than that. That people are watching and looking and going, man, hey, if, if Brian can trust him in the middle of all of that, I can trust him. Hey, if, if, if that person can trust him and find the peace and joy they have in his walk, their walk with Jesus, and, and, and they have the kind of track record they have, then maybe he's for me too. That we build one another up in the body of Christ and we progress in our faith. It's redemptive in nature. God's working through it. Look at Colossians 1.24. I am now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his, for the sake of who? For the sake of the church, his body, which is the church. It is redemptive. It is used to progress us in the faith. It is used to encourage others who are in need of encouragement. It's used just that way. So it's real short. It's redemptive. It's used to build up the faith of others so they can go out there and share that faith. It's used by a holy God to do that because here's the deal. Here's what this simply means. To fill up what is lacking in the body of Christ and His suffering simply means this. Jesus still has enemies. He will have enemies until the end of this age. And the only way that those enemies can exercise their hatred against Jesus is to do it against me and you. That's simply what it means. He's not around. 
to persecute. He's not around to kick around anymore. He was crucified. Shortly thereafter, He ascended to the Father's right hand, and there He is, ever living to make intercession for us. And now He has a bride. He has a body, and it's you and I. And the only way to to really get at Him, and the only way for the enemy to get at Him is to go after His children. That's why on the Damascus Road, we've talked about this time and again, but on the Damascus Road, that's why when Jesus met Saul, who became Paul on the Damascus Road, He did not say, why are you persecuting my church? What was the question? Why are you persecuting me? Lord, I don't even know who you are. I haven't laid a hand on you. Hey, let me tell you what you've done. You've imprisoned and martyred my people. And it's the same thing as doing it to me. It's the same thing as doing it to me. Doesn't that say something about what Jesus thinks of us? We're baptized. We have a new identity. We're no longer us. We're in Christ. Amen. Amen. And amen. That's our communion. It's real short. It's redemptive. And I want to tell you this right now. I want you to listen to this one carefully. Turn to Romans chapter 5 while we're doing it. Some of this is going to be, those of you who are going through the Romans study, it's going to be a bitter review for you, this text. And we're not going to have time enough to go through it, probably. It's real short. These light afflictions are for just a season of time in the time span of eternity. It's not long. Can I say this to you? If you're going through deep pain and suffering right now, just understand this. It might seem like it's forever. But I'll assure you, based on the Word of the living God, and in comparison to eternity, it is not. It is light affliction. I was talking to a brother who's in here this morning. I love it. I shared this with my wife after he said it. He said, i got to figure, you know what I mean? Even if I make it to 80, even if I make it to 80 in this life, and I have to go through suffering between now and 80, and this guy's younger than me. Hard to imagine. But he said, even if I make, even if I make it 80, that's not so long. Not in light of eternity. And I thought, you know what? This guy must be letting Jesus have his way with him. Because he's exactly right. Even if it lasts through 80, and we marvel though that and go, oh, 80. No, 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 no. In light of eternity, what did the Bible say it is? A puff of smoke. Nothing but a vapor, according to James. Just a vapor. It's real short. It's redemptive. My wife said, quit messing up your hair while you're preaching. <laughs> it's redemptive, and then I'll pay for that. Uh, and then I want you to listen to this one. Listen to this one. Real, listen to this one really good now. It's real short. It's real short. It's redemptive. And this might be the most important of all the R's. It's relational. It's relational. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I want you, don't, don't forget this. If, if, you know, let me tell you what the Bible means by that. It's relational. Watch this. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read. And Paul's talking about the rejoicing that we have over tribulations. Look what he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. We have to dive into the middle of a text that we're not going to be able to capture the whole meaning because we're, we're, not, we're not dealing with the context, but I can't help it. Time won't allow us to go any further. But it says this in verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory, and that word is better translated, exult or rejoice. In your version, it might be that. I think in the NIV it's rejoice, and in the New American Standard it's exult. Both of those are better words. We rejoice. We rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Then it says, now hope does not disappoint, 
that comes through the crucible of difficulty because the love of God, not love for God, but the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's look at these words very carefully and quickly. It says we, re- we, we rejoice and we exult in tribulations. That word tribulation simply means pressure. That's what it means. It says we rejoice in the pressures that are being imposed on us. Anybody in here, without raising your hand, feel like there's pressure on you right now? I do. I do. It's coming at you. It's squeezing you. Squeezing you and you're hard pressed and it's squeezing you in. Sometimes the pressure even boxes you in so that you cannot get out of it, even if you'd like to. There are some of you who are walking in places right now that if you could get out of it, you would. And let me tell you why I know that. Because that's how I feel. A bunch. Well, if I could just get out of this. If I could just squirm out of this. Just give me an opportunity. Lord, I'm looking for an out. Let me tell you something right now. You don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to look for an out. You need to look for Him. You look for Him. Look at this. He said, the tribula- we rejoice in tribulation means pressure, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. All right, That perseverance means this. It means to persevere under trial. What it means, literally, that word literally means, it's translated from a word that means, now listen to this carefully, because this, this is really going to land, land you right where you are. I don't care where you're walking right now. But, and the reason I know that is because it, it lands on me that way. It literally means this that you don't try to wiggle out from under it and escape. That's literally what it means. I'm not going to wiggle out of this. I'm not going to manipulate myself or others. I'm going to patiently endure. Some of you are in a situation that you can't get out of, and even if you could wiggle out of it like we just talked about, you, you can't. Some of you have the opportunity to wiggle out. Think twice before you do it. Think twice before you do it. Because like we've talked about time and again before, God's more interested in changing you than He is in changing your circumstances. Means, I'm going to hang in there even when the pressure's mounting. I'm going to hang in there. And perseverance produces character. And that word character, and in your version of the Bible, it might even say this, proven character. Proven character. What that means is a tested veteran. It means somebody who's been through the fire and has given a testimony to say that when I got in the fire, the character that God wanted to forge in that fire was forged in me. I found it in the fire. I did not find it in a a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. I found it in the fire. It's a proven character. It's a character that has metal to it. It's been through the fire and it persevered. And then that tribulation and all of that, that proven character produces hope. Now here's the relational part. I want you to listen to this. Suffering is real short. It's redemptive. God uses it in your life and the life of others to grow and progress them in their faith. And it's relational. Here's the deal. This is it. He said... When you persevere, it produces character, and that character is hope. Now, we've talked about this before. That word hope right there is not the same word as the English word hope. We don't have a, a really good English equivalent of the word from which that was translated. That, the English word hope is this. Gee, I hope it works out that way. I just really kind of sort of hope, in, in, boy, I just hope it works out that way, but there's still potential that it might not. This word is confidence in an assured outcome. 
It means that that hope is not just, wow, I hope it turns out that way. That hope is this. It's going to turn out that way. The tomb is empty. I'm redeemed. I have got confidence in Him. The Bible says in Psalm 37 that God preserves His saints forever. Thank you, Brother Jeff. Amen. Amen, Brother Gary. He preserves us forever. Hallelujah. Amen. It's confident expectation. And why? Because the Holy Spirit has been deposited into my life. And the love of God is poured into my life in the middle of persevering. Here's the, here it is. I've gone over this text a billion times. And this is what I believe it teaches. Everyone, listen to me, everyone, everyone, everyone is the object of the love of God. Think of the vilest person you know that you cannot stand and you are repulsed by their life. Can we tell you this? God loves them. As a matter of fact, God was once repulsed by your life and still loved you. As a matter of fact, in the following verses in 5.8 and following, it says that there are four things that we were when Christ died for us. Not as He died for us, or it's when He died for us. We were without strength, means helpless. We were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were His enemies. That's the crew He died for. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Everybody, everybody is the object of God's love. Now, when you get saved, the Bible says in John 1.12, To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. You believe and you receive and you become. And you become His child. That's when you become a recipient of God's love. When you're saved. But let me tell you this, in church, this sort of, this sort of resonates with you because we prayed this over the church. When you persevere in trials and you hang in there, and you don't try to, to wiggle out from under it, you go from being an object of God's love, and in salvation to being a recipient of God's love, and then through perseverance and trial, you begin to understand God's love. That's when you begin to understand it. That's when the Holy Spirit communes with you. And then you say, wait a minute, difficulty in the Christian life, tribu tribulation and trouble that has been granted to you is not evidence of the fact that God doesn't love you. To the contrary, it's evidence of the fact that God does indeed love you. You know where we prayed this? If this is happening to you, and you're beginning to understand the love of God, found in Christ Jesus. It'll be through perseverance and suffering and trial. That's where it'll be. The rest of it's theory. The rest of it's theory. But when you persevere through trials, look at Ephesians. That we start, this is a prayer that we pray. I used to sign all the letters I ever sent out with this, this prayer on it. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. Look at it. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And we're going to look at it and we're going to close after we share this because we're not finished with this business about granted. Let me tell you this. Let me ask you this. Let me say this to you. Can I say this to you? Don't you think, don't you think, let's just, let's, let, in view of this text, that perseverance through suffering gives you understanding of God's love and you really begin to understand God's love, you're hooked. 
You're hooked on Him. And surrender comes from that. A greater measure of surrender comes from that. Don't you think that it would be the in the interest of the enemy to raise up theological thought and systems that say that the Christian life guarantees no suffering? Doesn't that make sense? If you were the enemy and you were going to strategize and you saw... Do you know what happens to the church when she's persecuted? What happens to the church when she's persecuted? She grows. What happens to the church when she's persecuted? She becomes stronger, not weaker. And if you're the enemy, and you know that, and you look back at the history, the enemy's not omniscient. He doesn't know the future. But he can look at the past and assess the past and go, you know what, every time I mess with these people, they get bigger. Every Every time I try to weaken them, they become stronger. I'm still not going to keep doing that. I'm still going to do that because there's some fake ones among them and I'll get them. I'll get them. They'll be exposed through this and I'll get them. But here's the deal. I'm not going to give up on that, but let me tell you my other attack. Let me tell you the other front I'm going to approach this on. I'm going to raise up some big shot television evangelists and big shot, big haired people. I used to have big hair. I used to do it with a curling iron. It'd stick up like that. You go home to our house tonight and you'll see my big hair. I've threatened to take down every one of those pictures. I'm embarrassed by every last one of them but it may be six inches taller. And see here, the big-haired preachers and all the guys that get up there with the big budgets and they get, on their, they get on their bandwagon and say, listen, just because if you're suffered, it means you don't have enough faith. And God came to heal you. By His stripes you were healed. You were to be healed of every infirmity and everything. You should just float to heaven on a bed of ease, comfort, and pleasure. If you were the devil, you'd peddle that junk because you know that when the church gets persecuted, she grows in her understanding of the love of God. And when you know God loves you, you will persevere through anything and you will flat lend down and surrender to His life. That's his strategy. I don't blame him. The only problem with that kind of theology is the Bible. Other than that, it's fine. This is what we prayed as a church. This is what we prayed over this church. I pray this over every last one of you. Pastor Dave and I pray this over myself first before I ever prayed over you because I need a lot more work done on me than you need done on you. But But this is what we pray over every last one of you. We shared that. We went over to your house. You remember that? Al and Elaine, and we were over there and we shared agape and what the prayer for the church. And we asked you to join us together. We got an email the next day. It so blessed me. And Amber said, I'm in. I'm praying that too. I said, God bless you, Amber. You know what? We're going to pray together. And we're going to, this is what we're going to pray over the church. And this is it. This is a prayer. This is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the Bible. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know what? You know what? What we didn't tell you which the Scriptures do. What we didn't tell you is if you start praying that over yourself, He's going to put you in Romans 5. 
And what He's going to do to teach you how broad and how wide and how expansive the love of God is and grow in your comprehension of that love is, is He's going to put you in the crucible. He's going to put you under tribulation and trial because again, everybody, everybody is the object of God's love. When you get saved, you're the recipient of God's love. But when you persevere under trial, you begin to understand God's love. And then would you do that? Oswald Chambers said this, and boy, this just hits me right in the face. God can never make us whine if we object to the fingers He uses to crush us. If God would only use His own fingers and make us broken bread and pour out wine in a special way, but when He uses someone whom we do dislike or some set of circumstances to which we have said we would never submit, we object. We must never challenge the scene of our own martyrdom. If ever we're going to be made wine to drink, we will have to be crushed. You cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. The Garden of Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane means? It means crushed. The weight of our sin was put on our Savior and crushed Him in that garden to set me and you free from everything else that would crush us. Here are the options. Jesus said this, I'm the cornerstone. I am the cornerstone. I am the stone that the builders rejected. And he who stumbles on me will be broken. But he on whom I fall will be ground to powder. It's up to you. Either repent in this life and be broken before a holy God or be ground in unrepentant disbelief in the next. One or the other. Man, I want to be broken and spilled out. If I could sing that song, I'd sing it right now. Broken and spilled out. Poured at your feet. Broken and spilled out. Just for love of you, Jesus. Life's most precious treasure. Ravished on thee. Broken and spilled out. And poured at your feet. In sweet surrender. Lord, let me be broken and spilled out for thee. Is he breaking you right now? You want to wiggle out? I don't blame you. I'll tell you this. Let me tell you this. I've wiggled out. If you were honest, so have you. I took the path of least resistance. If you're honest, so have you. And some of you are tempted to do that even this morning. Can I beg you as believers and implore you in the, in the, in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't do it. If you ever want to find out who he is, you will not find out when things are easy. You'll find out when things are difficult. And the suffering that you've been called to is grace. Don't let the enemy use it to cast doubt on God's love when in reality, it's strong evidence of it. It's strong evidence of it. Submit. Find out what he has in it. And then, God will go to answering this prayer. And what will he do? He'll give you comprehension of what the love of Christ is all about. You begin to understand that. You're hooked. You're ruined. You're done. You're done. Your search for finding whatever in whatever will be over because you will have found your all in Him.